you know, when you're getting started looking at investing, you have to think about what you bring to the table. Like, do you bring the work or do you bring the money? Welcome to the Big Picture Blueprint. I'm your host, Dan Hebercost, along with Mason McDonald. And we're going to discuss all things land, real estate, and business in general with all kinds of exceptional people. Let's get started. What's up, everybody? My name is Mason McDonald, and along with me is my co-host, Dan Habercost, and this is the Big Picture Blueprint. And I'm very excited about today's show. Uh, we get to interview an old friend of mine and my first realtor ever, too, which is exciting. But before we get into that, Dan, how are you doing? Mason, I'm great. It is January the 9th. We have put five or six lots under contract to sell already in the last week. It's been crazy. Uh, doing a ton of deals. Business is a lot of fun right now. Uh, so excited for the year. Yeah, it's uh, been a great start to 2024. I think there's a lot of optimism in the market, uh, at least in the land business and what we're seeing from builders, uh, which is really exciting for us. And um, between our ventures we're doing and my own company, seeing the exact same thing, huge pickup in the market, which is great because I had no land sell in December. Uh, so my P&L ended uh, not as strong as I would like, but uh, it's very, very strong start to the year in January already, uh, which is when we're recording this. But uh, today we're going to have a different guest on the show uh, than previous guests. Uh, we have my good friend, Tim Macy. Uh, Tim is beyond all his accolades and accomplishment. He is my first realtor I used uh, in my life. Uh, he both represented me on the buy side and sell side of my home which I still get reports on how much that house is worth now, uh, which is depressing to me. I wish I had held it forever. But uh, Tim is a social media marketing expert and community builder at Real Broker. Uh, since joining Real in October of 2020, Tim has grown the largest agent organization at Real using the One Real concept and continues to be a contributor to, good to company culture and growth. He is the co-host of the Real Estate Video Blueprint and speaks at events across the country. In his off time, he enjoys traveling the country with his awesome wife, Pawn, and super cool daughter, Alice. But Tim, you can tell it better than us. How are you doing today? Dude, that's the, that's the best intro anybody's ever given me. Like, I, can't, I don't know if I can live up to that, man. That was, I know. It's got that neon sign behind you. You, uh, you got the mic. You got the headphones. You've got everything going on. So tell us, yeah. Tim. It, it's funny. The, the Zoom background is the new fancy office, you know, like I've used to want a big fancy office and a building and everything else. Now all we do is Zoom calls. So having a cool background and a cool setup is like the new nice off got your sneakers on display too. Or at least one pair of yeah. God only knows how many. One pair. And any good Zoom office knows too. Like the background looks good, but everything else is a mess. Like the whole office is an entire catastrophe. But as long as your as long as your Zoom background looks See, good, it, you're it's good. Better than mine with the uh, you know elementary school map of the united states in the background and dan and uh you just got to put some pins on it like you're doing deals oh, in every I, state i've got them they're just so small you can't even see them so it's uh so my own ego but <laughs> tim uh tell us about yourself how did this new england boy become one of the greatest real estate agents in the world <laughs> well i gotta say of all the things you said your first uh realtor was probably you know my biggest accomplishment was you know, being Mason McDonald's real estate agent. So no, I, I was in the Air Force. Uh and that was kind of like my my drive in life is I wanted to go serve my country. And I was in the Air Force for about six years, went to the pararescue program with high ambitions, like I think everybody does that goes into that program. And uh got hurt, you know, five weeks in, uh, washed out of there, no idea what I was gonna do with my life going from like what I thought was a 20 year career. And then all of a sudden getting out with not really any direction. And I was in San Antonio and, uh, I just had this overwhelming feeling while I was, I was fighting for to stay in the air force, right? Cause I had gotten injured, but I thought I was good enough to keep serving. And, you know, there's some guy in some random office and some base that handles the files and just like stamps a no on it and and hands it off, right? And it was it was very frustrating. Uh, my wife was pregnant, and you know we're sitting there with our having our uh, we've got to have our first kid here soon. And I realized I have no control over my future, which I probably should have realized that when I when I joined the military. Right? They're going to send you wherever you want to go. But when you're in it, like I don't care. Like that's what I signed up for. 
But to have my career and livelihood totally out of control was, was a feeling that really hit home for me. And I had a moment where I said, my name is going to be on the front of the check, not the back of the check. And that, that was a moment that, that flipped for me when, when I was getting out, but I still had no idea what I wanted to do. <laughs> I was like, look, I am not going to go work for somebody because I cannot have my future in someone else's hands. And so I'm going to go work for myself. Uh, you know me, like I'm not the sharpest heads in the box, you know, I'm not exactly playing with a full deck of cards. So I was, I wasn't going to go make some app, you know what I mean? I wasn't going to go develop some technology. I'm not that smart. Uh, I could probably sell stuff and my, my family's been in the car business for years, but I knew those hours were awful and I knew it was such a long road. So it's like, okay, if I'm going to sell stuff, what is the best thing for me to sell? to build the best career. And it didn't take a, a ton of research to find real estate uh, as that answer. And then once I found real estate, I got very excited about investing. Part of that because when you get your license, they say, hey, call all your friends and family and ask if they need a real estate agent, right? I'm in San Antonio. I have no friends, no family. We know no one. We're here all by ourselves. And the people who didn't care if you were friends with them were investors. <laughs> like investors just care if you bring them a deal. Yep. Uh, and so, you know, I, and I, I was really infatuated by real estate investing. So I dove headfirst into that. Um, I really just became a nerd on as much as I could with real estate investing. I made some great relationships in that space. Uh, and then, you know, my wife started helping me out. Uh, we would help find deals for investors. They would flip them. And part of the deal was if we found the deal for them, they would give us the listing and then we start listing houses. So I don't do anything. I try not to do, do anything uh, half speed. Like I'm either all in or I'm all out, right? Which is which is another problem in my life. Because um, some people are like, why doesn't Tim talk to me? I'm like, I don't know, man. I'm like super friends with people. I'm friends with them all in on the things I'm all in on. And if I'm not all in on it, I'm probably not interested in it at all. And that's, that's a whole other thing. But anyways, we go into selling properties and I'm looking at, okay, what do I need to do to sell these houses for more money? What do I need to do to get more people to these houses? And so, you know, we were looking at, you know, our staging. We were focusing more on the design stuff with the investors because we were realizing the things that we were running into on the back end. Uh, we were looking at the social media marketing. We were looking at all this different stuff to make sure we were we were optimizing for our investors' ROI at the end of the transaction. Like, it's not like you can do things to sell a house for $20,000 more, right? There are like $2,000 improvements that making $20,000 more. And so uh, we really went all in on that. And that's what we were doing. And we were taking before and afters and people love following that. And then uh, along the way, we started to get referrals to what I would say your regular real estate client. And uh, I remember it very vividly. Uh, there was a pastor who had like five kids, you know, two of his own, three adopted. And his family was trying to move uh, to go open a new church somewhere. And like, they had a big mission in front of them, what they wanted to do with their life, but they couldn't sell this house. And my wife and I went over to it and we realized like, yeah, there's toys everywhere, right? There's like stuff all over the place. I mean, it's not any more messy than my house is, but it definitely wasn't a house ready to sell. And when we're walking through there, we realized, I'm like, hasn't your agent helped you out with this? Cause their house is already on the market. And I realized they, they weren't. I realized that people selling regular residential homes weren't putting the same effort in as we were when we were selling our investors' properties. And that's where I looked at my wife, especially that situation. I was like, it's not that I want to sell more houses like this. We have a responsibility to sell more houses like this because if they don't work with us, they're going to work with somebody else. It's going to put their lives on hold for another 60 days. And like, people need to have better service. So as much as I love helping our investors, we really got passionate about building our business to help more people. Long story short, we did that. And then uh, we had a pretty good reputation in the industry. And then in October, 2020, we moved over uh, to Real Broker and really just ended up falling into a role of, of growth where uh, we've been helping agents and trying to scale better service, trying to scale uh, smarter agents, trying to scale all the things that we're passionate about doing across more people. So 
Tim, there's a lot to unpack there, and I'm trying to bookmark all of it, but there's a couple key things that I really want to pull out and then also ask you about. So number one, the way that you went very clearly looking for a career path, found an option that you knew was viable because other people were doing it, and then went all in. I, I love that, and I'm the same way. I think I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and bought my first duplex a month or two later. Uh, and, and this is so important. I want to drive this point home to our audience because you know, I, I'm thinking of a few people that I know are listening who've built one business and are thinking about another, or you know, they have a high-paying job, but they're thinking about starting a land business or a, a getting their license. And it all works. It's a matter of going and diving headfirst into one of these paths and being better than everyone else at it, which takes me to the other thing I wanted to pull out about what you said is it is so sloppy. The, sa the salespeople in residential real estate I could go on about this forever, but your competition <laughs> yeah. is so but bad. I work with them every. Yeah, I work with them every day, so I hear you. Yes, the <laughs> bar is so low, and so I, I, I'm excited by what you're doing. I can already start to see why you've been able to build such a, a such a big team so quickly. Because being better than everyone else, number one, pays off for your clients. You have that fiduciary responsibility, but from just a financial perspective, is going to get you guys all the business. So that's really cool that you're doing that. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll stop there because I'm sure Mason has things to say too. Well, I, I think, yeah, I mean, Tim, you tell that story about the pastor and it reminds me of the home that we bought uh, with you guys. And we yeah. walked in, uh, Alice had to go to the bathroom really bad and we walked in. But so I, I would, again, I was starting out, Alice, my daughter, who is what, like mm -hmm. three or something, would come to showings with me because I didn't, I didn't have anywhere else to go. And uh, what I think is funny, I, I want to get to your oh, thing, yeah. but you just, you brought this up and it made me think about something because I've been talking to a lot of people about this lately. Uh, we talk a lot about work-life balance and I think it is, it is an overused thing. And the reason I say that is when I, when you're starting a business, there is no balance. Like if you seek balance in a lot of that, you'll get not great results. And, and I say that because we made work our entire life. There was no balance. Alice went to showings with me, right? I mean, every single point of the way, and we made it work. We had people like Mason who, you know, like thought it was cool that we were out there doing it, but our whole life was our work. And because of that, our work gave us an amazing life. But so many people want this work-life balance before they've put in the work to build the life. But I'll go ahead. Go ahead. Mason. That's a mic drop moment. That's beautiful. And we, we feel the same way in... It, it goes back into whenever you left the military of if you're going to build something, you can't look around and expect anyone else to do it. And there's a lot of time in the day and there's a lot of days in the week if you are working beyond eight to five and Monday through Friday. And it's just on you. And I think for the entrepreneur, for the person that's willing and able and capable to build their own business, you have to recognize that's a requirement of at least at the beginning. And you, you, if you look at your social media now and everything, people would be like, oh, Tim's traveling 5,000 days of the year. He lives in Disney. <laughs> he lives abroad. He's flying the jet with the CEO of real, like he's the coolest guy ever. And I'm, and I remember that of going to that showing where we had, there was 50 children running around that house. The house was yeah. disgusting. There was trash everywhere. And I mean, I smelled blood in the water and, uh, which is how we got a yeah. great deal on it. But Tim, like bring, bringing Alice, Alice along and Pon, who does so much within your business, um, y'all's business. Yeah. And um, it, it's really cool to see. And I think it's super important. But you kind of switching gears here, going into the social media and the video marketing. How did you get started with that? And kind of how did you realize you were either naturally good at it or you had to follow some sort of system that someone else had to get good at it? Yeah. So. I think one, when I was in the military, I had a flip phone. So I was disconnected, like, you know, so I'm naturally a social person, but I'm not naturally a social media person. So, you know, there's plenty of people like, oh, I don't like social media. Like, look, me either. <laughs> but I understood that, again, I was in a place where nobody knew me and I needed more people to know me. I needed to build a network. I needed to build a relationship so I could build a business. And I think the biggest thing, and to get started, you know, it was funny. I mean, I was at some awful hoarder house that smelled like cat poop and had trash everywhere. So I went live on Facebook. And I don't know if you remember back when you could go live on Facebook and literally 
every single person that you were friends with on Facebook got a notification and mm -hmm. saw it. But when, you know, Facebook Live first came out, it was like everybody saw your Facebook Lives. And so I did a lot of that going through these awful houses and people were amazed at how crappy houses can be. And then, you know, later on, I would I would go on when it was finished and they would, you know, they would love watching the journey of going through the, the crappy house and then following to the finished house. And, you know, look, I'm finding these deals. I'm helping an investor do it. And then they're doing the work. I'm helping them sell it. But a lot of people were just viewing me as the guy that's doing all these investment properties. They're like, he like he is the expert. And I'm big on not, you know, not saying I'm something I'm not. Like I'm very honest and transparent with people, but just that's what they were getting from the content. They're just following the journey and they're like, man, this guy knows about investing. And so that helped me build my investing business because somebody would be like, Oh, yeah, I'm thinking about investing in real estate. And a lot of people would say, Oh, do you follow Tim Macy on Facebook? He's always going Facebook Live and all these things. And so like that's how social media helped build my business. But I think one of the things that I see, and I work with our agents and different people all the time on this when we're devising their strategy, is um, most of the time we want to post the things on social media that we want people to like. We post the things that we want them to engage with, not the things they're actually going to engage with. So I have real estate agents that will post this stuff about like interest rates are down. Nobody cares. Like, let me tell you about this FHA home buyer program. Nobody cares, right? Like you're making content you hope people care about, but they don't actually care about. And Alex Ramosi says it. It's like, if you're a travel agent, you sell the beach. You don't sell going to the airport and waiting in line through security and then getting your boarding pass. Like that's awful content. Right, you sell the beach, and it like inadvertently that's what I was doing. I was like, ugly house, beautiful house, like that's what people want to do. Yet we want to talk about loan programs and interest rates and all this different stuff. And so I think that's what I got good at. I think some agents watch what other agents are doing, and then they go copy what they're doing, and then we end up with the realtor bubble of just awful content that consumers don't connect with and consumers actually dislike. And then they're like, these agents are always posting all the same crap. And instead, I think what I get laser focused on is what is the content that's going to connect with my consumer? Okay. Not what I hope they connect with, what they actually will connect with. And so, uh, you know, all these agents want to make content about, hey, let me show you how easy it is to buy a house. Like we make the process so smooth. And then, you know, or like, hey, now's a great time to buy. Real estate agents have been saying now's a great time to buy since when? Since like ever. Since history, real estate agents have been saying it's a good time to buy. If people don't trust them because they say that. And so when you get on there and you're like, man, now's an awful time to buy. Interest rates are high. Property values are high. The thing nobody's talking about, homeowners insurance is even higher. And uh, it, unaffordability is crazy right now. It is an awful time to buy a house. Guess what? That's what the consumer is feeling. And that's content they actually connect with. And then if they actually connect with you, then you get to tell them, oh, by the way, like we do help our people get through this tough thing. And like, you know, though, even though it's tough, the earlier you get in, you play the, you, you win the game by playing longer. Like you can draft the message and, and get the message across you want, but so much time on, on so many times on social media content, you fail to connect with the consumer because you put out content that you want them to connect with, not the content they'll actually connect with. That is a, a great point. And you actually uh, led into our next question before we even asked it. So yeah, it, it sounds trying to more effectively empathize with your customer and, and sell them or, or post about their dream and what they're actually trying to accomplish, as opposed to the the steps to get there. Right, like you said, selling the beach and not the waiting in line at security. So we were going to ask about quality, uh, quantity, and consistency with social media. It sounds like quality is at yeah. the top of the list. Can you speak to a consistency a little bit and how important that is? And then feel free to contradict what I just said. Yeah, I, I would. Yeah, because quality is definitely not at the top of the list. Okay. When, when I say quality, I mean the thing that you're saying in the way you're saying it mm -hmm. is much more important than how nice of a camera you have and what your microphone is and all that other fun stuff. I mean, we know some of the most viral, most watched videos on the internet are ridiculous. Somebody's shaky cell phone, mm -hmm. but it's it's the moment that you're capturing that's important. And so 
if you're putting out content right now, it's not doing what you what you want it to do. I can almost assure you, you don't need a new camera, right? Like it's not that. It is the things you are saying. It's the way you're connecting with the audience um, that isn't working. Consistency, like I would say the quality of your connection in your content is probably the number one thing, not the quality of the production. The second thing like you were getting at is consistency. Consistency is super important. Not just because like if you want to do anything and get results from it, you have to do it consistently. I am the king at working out religiously really hard for 30 days and then going on vacation and eating too much food and being lazy. And like, I'd never get the results because I'm never consistent, right? So to get results, we have to be consistent. But technically, when you look at social media platforms and in the power of organic audience growth, that's what we're really going after. Like I, I, and don't get me wrong. There may be people like this that, that pay for ads and have paid to grow a big audience and it works. That's great. For me, the magic is in organic growth. And the organic growth comes from not you figuring out who your audience is, but the platform you're putting your content out, figuring out who your audience is. Uh, and so, you know, for instance, my guy, Ken Pozek in the Orlando area has built this amazing, you know, one of the top teams in Orlando. I think the only teams that are doing more deals than he is are the, the Zillow teams. He like doesn't pay for Zillow. The foundation of his business is YouTube. And what's great about it is he consistently puts out great content about Orlando, about stuff that those pe people moving there, people that live there are going to connect with. And if he does it consistently, the algorithm figures out, oh, people that are thinking about moving to Orlando really like to watch these videos. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to take these videos and put them in front of more people who are thinking about moving to Orlando. So the platforms, if you stay consistent and you have great niched content, start to do the work for you. Like you don't have to run an ad and try to figure out who your audience is and then spend a hundred bucks on Facebook trying to to boost your thing out there to the people you think it will be relevant to. On most of these platforms, if you can post consistently and post good stuff consistently, the platform will do the audience for I mean, do the do the work for you building the audience. And so he's got, you know, fifty thousand subscribers that are fifty thousand people that are interested in what he's selling. You know what I mean? And he hasn't had to pay a dime to build that audience because by being by creating really great content that connects with the person he's trying to connect with and then doing it consistently, the platforms do the work for you, whether it's YouTube, Instagram, TikTok's a big one. Like if you can really hammer in niche content that really connects with the audience on TikTok, TikTok's really good at finding that audience and all of a sudden, boom, you, you've got this big following overnight on TikTok. I don't know if you guys follow that, but TikTok's probably the easiest platform to grow a massive audience quickly. A lot of the other, you know, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, it's a lot more of a grind. And I think that's why you see so many TikTok influencers pop up out of nowhere. And Tim, like I, I want to kind of draw on the point that we've been making throughout the episode, which is uh, that if you are very focused and specific with what you are attempting to do, you're going to match up with that audience of you don't necessarily need to appeal to every single person. I've had the pleasure of listening yeah. to one of your speeches talking about social media marketing. Uh, you can, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. Uh, I got to meet Trey, who posts a lot of great content and you know, out in San Antonio. And I think that one of the balances that you have to strike, and I think Dan, whenever he was talking about quality, he definitely, um, he means, and we, we're all on the same page of, it doesn't matter if you're filming on an iPhone or a really great webcam or whatever you're filming on. It's about the actual content that's being said versus all the equipment. And I think that if you are um, getting into the content creation space, you have to recognize that it's not necessarily a bad thing to do the clickbaity type of reels and the caption, the big captions and everything, because you want to attract people to your page to get certain views. And then if that, if the content that you're creating aligns with them, like I think one of our top viewed reels on Instagram or uh, YouTube is Dan telling the story about having to bail his contractor out of jail. And that's a super yeah, clickbait headline, but it's at, at the end of the day, it's talking about the, the woes of real estate investing. And then you start getting real estate investors involved in, in your content creation. So I think, uh, establishing who that audience is, is really critical. And then matching the content that they want to hear rather than what we want to talk about. We want to talk about 
really technical high level stuff that no one else gives a shit about um so and then math yeah. with a good thumbnail and some of that other stuff that goes into it there, there's two things i think about when you say that one um you got to get rid of this clickbait idea and look i i don't like clickbait i hate if something's like uh you know the truth behind epstein island and then i click on it and it's like so I'm in my California grove here growing oranges and we have the best oranges. Like, what the hell? What are you talking about? Like, this is not what I we need. This that's clickbait. When you, yeah, those, God, they're so bad, but they're so good that you have a, you have clickbait is when you have something that makes me click on it and you don't follow through on the promise, right? That's clickbait. If you put something on there that makes me click on it and you don't follow through on the promise, I've been baited and switched and I don't like it. But at the end of the day, a lot of our our frustration as marketers with clickbait uh, is something that we have to just get rid of because it's not clickbait, it's clickworthy. What you have to understand is that when someone is on YouTube, someone is on Instagram, someone is on social media, they have a lot of options. They have a lot of options of content that they can watch. And you need to make content that is worthy of them clicking on it. And it's like, look, if you make something and it doesn't do well, and then you see somebody else make something that you think's clickbait and it crushes, you're like, oh, well, well, look, the market is the market is the market. Like you made something that nobody cares about and it didn't get any traction. Like make content that people actually care about. Guess what? People care about the fact that you had to go bail out your contractor. <laughs> yeah. That's an interesting story. It's not boring, right? So get rid of that clickbait term and your your view around it and just think of what is clickworthy bailing my contractor out of jail very clickworthy you know and, and then you'll see some other stuff you'll be like oh i think this is great this is going to crush i'm going to put it up there it's a dud look don't get mad at it just realize well hey i guess this wasn't clickworthy what can i do to make my next post a little more clickworthy it's fantastic and i i think changing the language around it's important too because when i think about when I was younger, whenever we first worked together and I was listening to every episode of Bigger Pockets, they're all the same thing repeated over again from a different viewer. And I I don't listen to a lot of the podcasts anymore. And I think that whenever I see something like that, like Dan's post of that, of, oh, that's different than something I've heard before. Uh, that is clickworthy. Yeah. And it's interesting. And it's like, what do you do with that situation? It's probably not the first or last time someone's had to bail a contractor or a tradesman out of jail during a huge project. But um, I think I think changing the language around it is really great. But Tim, um, you're obviously super personable and super social and you've built this huge brand. Uh, you were telling us just before we got on, how many agents do you have? And then even backing up, how did you figure out what skills to harness that allowed you to build this gigantic team? Yeah. So, um, man, I, th I think this is an interesting concept that I'm pretty passionate about. So, answer your question, we are over for that. We're right about 4,400 agents um, in our organization, 13,000 agents at the company. Uh, when I joined, it was, you know, about 1,000 agents. I think I came over with, with 50 in my organization. And one of the things that I've seen in a lot of uh, businesses, which is, it's, it's like the normal thing. It's very top down. You know, it's very much like, hey, uh, you've got an international office that owns this big business and then they've split it out into regions. You've got sales managers in those regions and they sell franchises and those franchises in some way, you know, service a consumer. And it's all very fragmented. You know, it's all very fragmented across all these different things. And I said it in a talk once, it's fragmentation kills innovation. When you have a fragmented company with all these different things, when it cut, like when the world changes overnight and all of a sudden people aren't using taxis, they're using Uber, like AI comes in and replaces half of your, you know, work or whatever. Like you got to be able to innovate and move this whole company. And the more fragmented it is, um, the harder it is to move. And so I think from a, a community perspective, both from I wanted to build a, a company that I would want to be a part of. And so that's, that's like, I, you know, I've grown this thing. I've made a bunch of money growing this thing. It's been great. I have people all the time ask me like, what should I? And it's like, well, I don't know what you should do, but I think the, the mindset that you go into it with and the vision that you go into it with is very important. Like you start there and then you figure out what you should do. And I know for me, when I came over to real, I was like in my head, I just said, Hey, 
I want to build the brokerage that I would want to be a part of. I want to build the community that I would want to be a part of. And I'm going to focus on doing that. And if I do that, if I pour into the the 40 or 50 people that came over with me, more people will probably show up and want to be a part of that. And then if they take that same mindset on, then you have this uh, kind of geometric growth thing where everybody takes that mindset on, everybody's helping each other out, everybody wants to be a part of this community. That's the type of thing that leads to that kind of, of growth. But it's different. It's also funny because, you know, my aunt at Thanksgiving will ask me, so like, what's, what's your job? I don't really have one. You know? <laughs> I, I, I just build in community. Like, I don't look at other agents as like, oh, I'm here and you're here. Like, I am the director of sales and marketing for this and you're just the, re-. it's, it's a, it's a, it's a horizontal organization that's very, very short, right? It's like all these agents working together to help each other out. Broker ops, C-level, that's pretty much it, right? It's a very uh, short but wide organization. And what I think happens when you can build that community and that type of culture is uh, what as business owners we hope, always hope our people do, which is they take ownership. Like they take ownership of what they're doing and so you don't have to, you know, impart that on them. Like I'm always hoping, you know, if I hire Mason, that I don't have to constantly keep Mason motivated, that he takes ownership of of his role and goes out and does the thing. And I think by building this community, you know, we, we give agents stock in the company as part of the deal. Like we have stock bonuses and all that other stuff because we believe when agents own the company, like they should own a, co- a part of the company that they're helping to build. But there's a difference between having ownership and taking ownership. Like we could have a culture where we just give agents stock, but we have a culture of taking ownership. Like, hey, this is up to you to build this thing with us and let's build this thing together. And that type of culture, I think, leads to better results than if it's like, hey, Dan, you're building your thing. Mason, you're building your thing and I'm building my thing. It's a, it's it's different than if it's like, hey, we're all building this thing together. We're all chasing a, uh, a bigger vision. And so that's like culturally what the vision's been. And then all the shorter, smaller items, like the events we do, how we have conversations with people, like all the nuanced stuff at the bottom is reverse, en- reverse engineered from that, that bigger vision. Yeah. I, I I'm glad we're talking about this because I know I personally am really trying to get better at hiring and, and building a culture Ooh. and keeping people you know, around for the long term. And it sounds like yeah. unpacking, trying to unpack uh, a lot of what you just said there, you did a, a great job of removing the ego that's often around traditional or in traditional businesses with the, on the owner of the company and just that whole dynamic where it's kind of confrontational oftentimes between, or at least just yeah. unpleasant between the, the owners and the quote unquote workers. But Along with that, it sounds like you've done a good job of aligning incentives and goals, vision, creating a fun culture, and then everyone's kind of rowing in the same same direction. Uh, so there's not a lot of internal conflict, it sounds like. Well, it sounds like, you know, it's funny you said everybody's rowing in the, dire- the same direction because, like, yes, I mean, of course, we have organization this big. It's not, we don't get it perfect every time. But one of the big things is, I think, is when you build a strong culture and you have everybody rowing in the same direction, one of the most important things I think that we we don't talk about that much is we make it really obvious. It it makes it really obvious when somebody's not rowing the same direction. You know, like when you try to build a culture and a thing that's kind of for everyone, it's really hard to pick out who's not your people. But when you're really defined on, hey, this is how we do things, this is who we are, this it becomes really easy. To be like, oh yeah, all those all those agents, they they all kind of work hard, be kind, like they all have those same values, da da da. And then it's easy when a Mason comes on and he's not that way, <laughs> he sticks out like a sore thumb. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like not only is building a great culture for your people, for 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 your niche kind of person that are the same DNA as you are, the DNA that you're looking for, all that other fun stuff. Not only is it great to find those people and take care of them, it's also great to weed out the wrong agents, you know, the wrong people and. I think I think so many times we're trying to grow, we're trying to figure out who we're for, and a lot of times we need to start at like who are we not for? Like let's while we while we try to figure out who we want to bring on, 
let's start with who are not for who who do we not want a part of our organization because then that's great then that lets you focus on and um, it, it's the same approach to content creation too and it's i think tim um something i think about because i'm i'm obsessed with this idea too of going from the corporate employee into uh, the solo entrepreneur role into uh, having one full-time employee and tons of contractors and various people that we work how do you apply what you're talking about building a 4,400 person team essentially uh, into a 13,000 person organization. How do you apply these lessons and tactics to the solo entrepreneur, to the person that has a small business, one or two employees? So employees, I like, we live in a different world, right? Because I'm bringing on real estate agents who are independent contractors. And so uh, some of this stuff kind of goes out the window when I think when you're bringing on employees, I think a couple of things on the employees. One, I think one of the biggest things is if you're early on in hiring, I, I know the mistakes that I've made is I, I see something of myself in someone and that makes me want to hire them, which is usually the wrong thing because I need someone who's the complete opposite of me so they can fill in all of the holes in my business that I'm not going to do. And so uh, now it's, I mean, it's probably not a good thing, but I don't if somebody seems like they're like me and I would want to hang out with them all the time, I probably shouldn't hire them. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think getting real on the fact that you need to get clear on who you need to hire and they need to be uh, an employee mindset person because all that culture driving stuff that I just talked about, taking ownership and everything else, uh, that's a small percentage of the population. And it's not the percentage of the population that you need that's going to be your admin. Like, you need someone that wants a job and they want consistency. And guess what? I don't know about you guys, but as entrepreneurs, I'm pretty awful at consistency. I need someone that is just looking for consistency and will bring consistency to the business. Now, on the same hand, you know, work hard, be kind is on all our t-shirts. It's one of our core values. You, you need to be able to transfer core values to your employees. And the reason I say that is because um, I've always pretty poor on the employer side for giving great direction. So, you know, that's one of the biggest problems that we see with entrepreneurs in their first couple of hires is like, it's not them, it's you. <laughs> like you didn't give them enough good direction. Like they came in and you, you expected them just to kind of pick things up like you do. And again, they're not you, like they need direction. Uh, and so we tend not to be good at, at giving detailed direction for our employees to be successful. But the other thing is, at some point, situations are going to come up where they don't have clear direction on exactly what they're going to do. And then your core values, your foundational values that you say who you are, are going to take over. And if you don't have those in place, you, you don't know what's going to happen, right? But it's like, if you can, one, get really good at building out the job and having great direction for your employees, but also having those underlying core values that will help them make the decisions when you don't have the guidance, uh, I think is super important. That that right there is, it, it's so smart for anyone, anyone in any stage of business, whether you are a manager, director, or C-suite at a corporation, or the entrepreneur looking for your best new hire, your first hire. And I think with uh, a, lot of, a lot of us in the real estate investing world, our first hire is typically going to be a salesperson. And when you're dealing with the salesperson, you're going to end up running into similar personalities to uh, the three of us. Yeah. Where um, yep. we, we all run into the same issues. And Dan, Dan and I work together now on our own company. And it's it's really good because we're very similar. Uh, but it's us doing the exact same things on different days. And we're not doing anything different from the other person because we're the same person. And I think with trying to hire someone that is in a sales role or whether they're the admin or COO. And I mean, Tim, Rachel's starting to work with me and she's the exact opposite of me. Yeah. So it works out really well because uh, she's very consistent with all the stuff that I hate doing. And you, you, you know, Pond and I were the same thing. Like I was Batman out showing the houses, doing the thing. And then she was like Alfred back in the Batcave. As soon as we showed a house, she was in the car writing the offer or she was back home. I was texting around the offer. And so she was totally the upside getting things done. And I was out in front. So marry the uh, the engineer. <laughs> well, it depends. Not if you're the engineer. No, I'm definitely not. <laughs> I'm I'm just. But if, yeah. if but yeah. yeah, but it depends. Like yeah. you got to I, I think you know the the Gary V thing may be a little overdone, but man, 
there's so much power in self-awareness yes. to realize who you are. Because sometimes like you think you're the engineer when actually you're the visionary that should be out doing the thing. And sometimes like the operator who just should be the operations person wants to be the visionary side of things. And like knowing who you are, I, I can tell you all the time, like I spend a lot more time recognizing my weaknesses than I do trying to figure out where I'm great, you know, which I think, you know, obviously there's a balance there, but like knowing where you're weak so you can find people to fill those spots. And I, depending on which self-help book you're reading, uh, people will think that they can overcome those weaknesses and you can't overcome them except if you're hiring someone to do it. So you should focus on your strengths and what you're good at and get really, really, really good at it uh, so you can grow your business and accelerate your business. Because when you find that person that can come in and do all the things you hate, where I think with the three of us, we're probably pretty good operators, but it's so painful. And like, just like with what you're saying of like, man, I can do it for like two weeks in a row and then I am done for the year. Like I can't do it anymore. And it's, it's, uh, it's, yeah. But there are some people that'll wake up and they love doing that. They don't, they don't want to talk to another human at all. Like that makes their skin crawl, but they will love to knock out, you know, more of the operationals type stuff that we hate doing mind-blowing and why self-awareness is important and it's realizing it's a big world out there and there's so many people uh you are not the way that everyone else is but yeah i i think being able to figure that out and find the balances in your organization and not hiring the exact same person of you where yeah that might grow your business but it's not going to grow your business by a multiplier other than just adding one to it uh if, if that makes sense but tim you are also an investor i know that you know, when I, when I found you, I, I think I found you on bigger pockets, uh, is how I found out who you were. Yeah, I, probably, I yeah. hired my previous agent and found you cause you were uh, friendly with investors, but what kind of investments are you looking at doing yourself and what draws you, uh, to the deal operator? Uh, what characteristics of the deal operator, deal finder that you, that you like that makes you want to invest with people? Yeah. I think one, when I was getting started, I did, I did everything, right? Like I flipped a couple houses had rentals. We did an Airbnb. Uh, we have a short-term rental right now. Um, we've done order finance stuff, uh, like just about everything we've, we've done it. And now, you know, when I, when I talk to people get, about getting into investing, it's like what most people need to do is actually drive income. You know, everybody wants yes. some, some like golden yes. investing ticket. That's like the secret yep. to investing. And the secret to investing is make more money. Yes. <laughs> like just yes. go make more money and, and all the other stuff starts to, starts to work itself out. And so, you know, at my, at the point where I am now, I'm, you know, we're, we're focused on driving more revenue and I'm, I'm really focused on passive stuff. Like, you know, the last flip I did was the last flip I did because, because, uh, it was like, took 12 months to do and it should have taken, you know, four, uh, because I was so busy with other stuff. Like, I just don't have the time to be out there flipping houses because we're driving income in, in other places. And so now, you know, when you're getting started looking at investing, you have to think about what you bring to the table. Like, do you bring the work or do you bring the money? And uh, I can hit on my four boxes real quick that I think about, which are yeah. there's finding the deal, finding the deal, financing the deal, whatever out value you're adding to the deal and the exit. I mean, pretty much every deal can be broken down into those four things, finding the deal, financing the deal, adding value in the exit. And so, yeah, when I was getting started, it's like I'm out there knocking on doors trying to find the deal because that's the value that I could bring to the table because I don't have any money. I also wasn't like a construction guy, right? So I wasn't going to like go put the new floors in. And then I was a pretty good agent. So I could do the exit. I could do the, the sale. So all I was doing was finding the deal, Finance somebody to somebody else to finance it. Somebody else would do the work. Then I would work on the sale. Where I'm at now, I'm really just mainly on that you know deal partner money side, and I'm analyzing deals. And I think that um, you know as the thing grows, like as the wealth grows, you you start to think about diversifying a little bit more. Which you know when I was starting out, it's like diversification, worsification. Like I need to focus on my thing go all in on my thing and just go hard. So now it's like, you know, we we do the traditional stuff. So I max out the 401k, all that jazz. 
We have a couple syndication deals that I think are probably five to six year timelines that we invest in. And then um, I have some other deals like development deal. Maybe it'll be like a short term six month loan, something like that. That'll that'll be faster turning cash. And I not only am I diversifying across deals, uh, I'm diversifying across like velocity of capital. So I'm diversifying in projects that'll pay me back in six months, projects that'll pay me back in five years, and you know, long term retirement stuff. And I think that's kind of where I'm at now. Uh, and then your question, Mason, on you know, what am I looking for with somebody that I invest in, which I think was your question. Where I'm at, I mean, again, I don't want to be in the deal. So I'm not in a position right now where I'm like taking a shot on the new guy. Like, you know, the guy that's just getting started, you know, I, because when you're just getting started, I would split a deal with someone. So if Mason came to me and was just getting started and he wanted to flip a house, I'd be like, cool, you're going to find the deal. You're going to do the work. You know, I have somebody sell it. I'm going to put up all the money and we split it. Right. And I mean, once you get going, like you don't want to be splitting all your money, but when you're getting started, you kind of have to do that. I'm kind of out of that space now. Like at a point in my life now where it's like, I'm only going to invest with people who have a track record of never losing money. And that to, you know, we'll be like, what do you mean never losing money? You're investing. You don't not, you know, you'll never lose money. Well, I pretty much only invest with people that have pretty much never lost money. And even if they did lose money, their investors always got paid. That's the only track record I'm interested in, in working with. And so if you are an investor and you are raising money, like you have to know that the people who like the responsibility to make sure the people that give you money get their money back is so important because once you let that fall through the cracks on a deal, once a deal goes bad once, I mean, it's tough to come back from that, you know? And so making sure your investors get paid. I actually did lose it was like twenty five hundred bucks on a on a flip I did, and uh, and it was it was uh, we bought a house and it was it was weird. It didn't need that much work, but man, it was one of these deals. As we were flipping it, just like everything kept falling apart. Right? It's like you're going to do the floors. All right, the floors going, but the cabinets are good. And then like you find out the cabinets are like disintegrating. Like oh crap, we need all new cabinets. And then that was going worse and worse. And then I remember my partner called me. And he's like, hey, man, there's a, a boat in the driveway. Like, there's a boat in the driveway? Somebody had dumped this old, decrepit boat in our driveway, and we had to get it hauled off. Like, it was just a nightmare deal. Yep. But I can tell you, uh, we had a 10% interest-only loan with a point on it. In the thought of calling that investor and saying, hey, you know, this deal actually didn't go through as well. We're actually losing some money, and, uh, you know, we're just going to, like, never cross my mind. Like, like I will always take the hit before I let the person that believed in me enough to write me a check take the hit. So that's, you know, make sure your people get paid. Even if you lose, make sure your people always get paid because that track record is what will build your business. Tim, you're hitting on so many good points. I'm trying to bookmark these so I can just quickly summarize for the audience so they don't miss them. And that right there is one of the biggest points you've made in the whole episode. The only thing that is you cannot get back, that you cannot repair, or it's really hard to is your reputation. You know, it, do not ever let your investors lose money. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. That is a great point. So thank you for, for making that. Number two, you said another thing that I think is uh, constantly, people are misled by podcasts because of clickbait, actual clickbait, where, you know, become an investor with no money down. No, no. If you are actually looking to be an investor and that word is misused, you need to go make money, which you emphasize, and I wish somebody would have told me six years ago. Diversification, also something you only should be doing once you've figured out how to make money and you're more to the stage of maintaining and, and, and looking, you know, defense is more important than offense because you've already created the scenario you want. If you're broke, yeah. It, don't diversify yeah, when you're broke. <laughs> exactly. You don't have anything to diversify with. Again, I'm also saying these are all things I wish I could have told myself seven years ago. Uh, so I'm glad you made that point as well. So, yeah, thank you for that, because the whole, you know, go build a, a, a stream of passive income with no yeah. money or experience is cool, total yeah. bullshit for it, actual investing. You can build an yeah. active business, which the word investing gets misused. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad you said that, too, because it's a great way to sell books and courses to say that you can have no money and go invest in real estate. 
Anyways, I'll I'll get off my soapbox. Go ahead. Well, one thing on the money thing though is is funny because I agree that there's way too much of this. You don't need any money to invest. And what I think happens, we talk about culture and values. That mindset transitions into when these guys start making money and they're not saving it. They're not hoarding cash. Like you know, there's this there's this uh, there's this thing against cash. And I mean, it's kind of a it's a sad story but it is what it is it's 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 kind of true a buddy of mine mason i connected you to my dude uh logan fulmer there right who's, who's one of the more successful investors I, i'm lucky to be friends with and, and just know and, mm-hmm. and witness he's a guy that was working in the oil fields living in a mobile home saving every dollar going and buying lots at the auction for five thousand dollars and then you know selling them for 15 or something right yeah. just horse trading cash buy it sell it buy it sell it that's all he did. And he went all the way. I mean, he went for years without taking a dime and just being cash in, cash out, cash in, cash out. And what's funny is I remember this other guy that I know, you know, small real estate community commenting on his stuff. And he's like, why don't you hold on to this apartment complex and leverage it? And da, 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 da. Like if you leverage, you can increase your returns and da, and great. And I know like by leveraging one, this guy wasn't doing nearly as much as, as Logan was, right? And he just isn't making as much because he doesn't have cash. And here's the deal. When somebody brings me the deal of a lifetime, it usually takes a lot of cash. Yes. Right? Because if it's the deal of a lifetime, they aren't looking for broke people to do it. And so the more you can hoard capital, hoard cash, you're going to be able to take advantage of the deal that brings you like, 50% returns or something crazy. Meanwhile, if you're like, oh, I'll be leveraged, oh, I'll be leveraged, oh, I'll be leveraged, and then you have no money, your cash flow is great and you're making 8% or something on whatever, but you're going to miss the deals if you don't have cash. Be in the habit of hoarding cash and being patient with it and going all in on great deals. Yeah, absolutely. With so some of my older, wealthier friends, there's one in particular I'm thinking about he won't even think about putting his cash into a deal if it's not. He, he likes a triple minimum. And, and those, yeah, there, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know what you're doing. Those yeah. are out there. Hormozy talks yeah. about this a lot too, where yeah. he, he says the wealthiest people he knows are all, they're not interested in 10, 20% returns. Why? Yeah. <laughs> and so, no, that's such yeah. a good point. Yeah. And it, I mean, that one, uh, Mason, the one, that development deal I was talking about. Um, yeah, t- tell us all about it because I've it, seen it on Instagram. Yeah. I think it's with Logan. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's in a lot of it, more, it's a good one. Uh, I'll, I'll yeah, yeah, I'll I'll give you a little background, uh, a little more scoop on it too. So, uh, again, talking about my buddy Logan, who again went from, you know, mobile home, uh, driving a nineteen ninety nine Ford Explorer when I met him, right? Like walking the streets of neighborhoods together, and uh, now he's got you know a commercial building. I don't know how big the team is, but he's got an acquisitions team, a whole thing. Like he's got a legit big business doing uh, a lot of commercial investing. And so I know he's hunting stuff all the time, constantly finding deals. Like if you want to get into real estate investing, finding good deals is the lifeblood of your business. Everybody wants to talk about the strategies. Oh, you can order finance, you can rep. No, talk more about finding good deals because you find good deals, you can do whatever the hell you want. But most people have a deal problem, not a strategy problem. I digress. Uh, so he he is always hunting deals. And when interest rates popped in like fall of 22, builders pulled out of the market. Everybody kind of was like, I don't know what the heck's going on. And so uh, one of the big nationwide builders pulls out of this lot deal south of Austin. And the way a lot of those builders work is they'll tie a property up under contract and they'll do all the development work because I don't think they want to put like all the capital into closing on it, knowing it's going to take three years, whatever it is. But they tie it up. They do like 80% of all the development work to get it ready to build. And then interest rates go up and they bail. And Logan scoots in the same position. So keep in mind, they got this land under contract three years ago. So we're under contract at value three years ago with 80% of the, the work done. Again, finding good deals. And so now he uh, he actually took the guy for, uh, that, that took one of the guys that does you know development stuff because that's not his thing. So it's like, if it's not your thing, go find somebody whose thing it is and have them come to your deal with you. So we've got this great guy who, who just knows this stuff in and out, knows the project well, bringing the project through to completion, and then we'll sell it. 
right? And and what I love about this one is, you know, principal in, and then you get your money back plus return when it sells. And most of the work's already done, so it, it, the the time shouldn't take so long. And then the other fun thing is, uh, there's a you know municipal utility district, which is essentially a piece of paper. But if you do the work to create that piece of paper and create the utility district, that's another thing you can sell. So I think we should see the return on the sale in, I don't know, maybe maybe another seven, eight months or so. Uh, I think it's about a year or so probably to you know do the first one year to 18 months. And then after that, then we got the utility district. So I'll probably get another return when they sell the utility district after I've already gotten my principal back. So that that's why that one's a good deal. But the funny part about that is Logan's been a friend of mine. He knows that I, I've always told him because he doesn't take any money. So it's like, Logan, I want to invest with you. And he's like, man, I don't really take anybody's money. I just do my own thing, which is totally fine. Uh, but once he got to a bigger deal of scale, he starts to raise money. And what's funny is he raised, you know, I think it was like 5 million bucks or something in a lunch or two because he's got this track record of someone who does great deals, never loses money, built this great reputation. And Dan, like you said, the guys with the really big money, like they only want to put their money into home runs. Mm-hmm. And so when when he brings somebody a home run, it's like he can raise his money, no no questions asked, super easy. And here's the other deal. He probably could have tried to work the terms where maybe he took a bigger management fee. Maybe he took a bigger uh, cut of the thing as the owner, whatever. Like he could have manipulated the numbers where the returns came in at, say, 16% because people were invest in something that's guaranteed 16%, but he didn't. He made sure the people that invest with him got the same return he did. And because of that, now he's built great relationships and great connections with much bigger people. And so, so many times people are trying to squeeze more juice out of the deal and they're actually killing themselves in the long run. Those are all fantastic points. And if you guys are interested in what Tim's talking about, what a deal like that looks like, Go back and listen to our episode with Alicia Jarrett, uh, where we talk all about land entitlements and what goes into that and how to make deals like that work, whether it's a minor subdivision or a major subdivision. And the idea of the utility districts, uh, we should have a whole episode on that because that's a <laughs> untapped niche that um, I've got some friends in that space that make more money than people could fathom uh, doing just a little, yeah. a little bit of complex work and it involves a city and local municipalities and all that sort of stuff. But Tim, I mean, what you're saying there is is so crucial. And I think with people that are building a business, like with what you're talking about with Logan of, I think that's how a lot of us started of, I used all my own cash and deals. And then I would run out of money and I wouldn't be able to do any more deals until the next deal sold. And then I started using other people's money and the exact same thing of, at the beginning of it, I was probably way too generous. And, you know, that's hard to, mm-hmm. hard to determine where I had a mindset of, I eat last. Uh, I will protect my investors at all costs. Uh, they will always make outrageous returns. A deal Dan and I did together with our capital partner. Uh, they're making, what, 105% annualized return on the deal. Yeah. They're like, man, we got to get our yeah. cost of capital down. But it's also, we're going to do 100 deals with it. So it'll pan out in the long haul. And yeah. what you have to recognize whenever you start getting to that place in your business where you're raising money and whether you're doing debt deals or equity deals and you're partnering with all these people on it is... Even though your cost of capital might be high, even though you are paying these people what seems like a lot to be these silent partners just giving you money, if you can figure out, just like what Tim is saying, how to find great deals, instead of doing one of those land entitlement deals, and I'm not saying go over leverage yourself, you can do a hundred of them and you're going to be making so much more money than if you were greedy and trying to, you know, get everything yourself. Well, Tim, uh, we're coming towards the end of an hour here. Uh, are there any questions that we did not ask you that you would have liked for us to ask you? Oh man, that was a feel good about this. This was a this was a solid solid six. You know, this is good. Nice, nice. <laughs> I, we we appreciate this. No, I mean, I think uh, look, I, I think my big thing. You know, we talked a lot about the investing. We talked about some different deals and stuff, and I talked about diversifying on investing, but I niched on my income. Right, like I I'm very niche on where the best use of my time is and I get to diversify when it comes to like sprinkling around the the fruits of the labor. Uh, But I think that I see a lot of serial entrepreneurs always trying to do different things where like you said, the the Hormozy deal, like most, most of the successful people have figured out one thing that they're really good at. And so 
I talked a lot about diversifying. I talked a lot about different things, but one of my biggest things is really figuring out, man, like what am I really good at that I should go all in on? Uh, another fun thing is you can ask people like Mason, I can ask you and I can ask, you know, people that know me well, and then you can say, Hey, like, what do you think it is that I'm really good at? Cause sometimes it's hard to know. Like maybe I think I should be a, a hand model because I like the way my hands look, but come to find out that's not what I'm good at. You know, if I asked some people, they probably would tell me. So uh, you can ask people around you, but finding what you're really good at and what you enjoy doing, I think uh, really is what changes your life. So I'm pretty passionate about that's that. So important. And on the flip side, find out what you're bad at too. And yeah. I think uh, I think whenever you can recognize it and have that insight um, and then being able to make a good judgment decision, you're able to really, uh, really just take direction, move in the right, move in the right way. Thanks guys. Uh, Instagram, find me on Instagram. That's usually the best place to, uh, connect because my email is a black hole that nobody wants to go down. So, um, yeah, if you want to, if you want to connect me, hit, hit me on the gram. I'd love to, I'd love awesome. to connect. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure to put all your links in the show notes. Uh, but Tim, this was an absolute pleasure. Uh, this was a ton of fun uh, getting to catch up, uh, see where you've been and how, how you got there. So this is Mason McDonald and Dan Habercost with The Big Picture Blueprint signing off. And that's it for today's episode of The Big Picture Blueprint. If you found it helpful, please share it with your friends or anyone you think that it could benefit. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and we'll see you in the next episode.